Hello and welcome to another bonus episode of Fantastic Fights, the podcast about a middle-aged man playing adventure game books out loud. These bonus episodes are made possible by the generosity of my patrons, and you can join that august fellowship by going to patreon.com slash hjdoom and pledging as little as a pound to support the creation of this ludicrous and curiously labour-intensive project. This episode we're getting our Arthurian mythology on as we tackle The Den of Dragons by J.H. Brennan. It was released in 1984 by Armada Books with artwork by John Higgins. We've got a lot to get through, so without any preamble, let's just dive right into it. Enjoy. Hello? Hello? Is anybody there? Can you hear me? Can you read me? I'm speaking into a seashell, a conch shell to be exact. Four knights and a sergeant-at-arms think I've gone bonkers, but... They know nothing about magic. No, no indeed. When you're a wizard, like me, you can use a conch shell just like a telephone. Which is just as well, since telephones haven't been invented in my time. Hello, is there anybody at the other end of my conch shell? This is Camelot calling. Are you receiving me? You. Yes, you. The one sitting there reading that Grail Quest book. It's part of my magic, that book. Yes, indeed. A very important part. You are reading a spell. Did you know that? I wrote it myself and sent it forward through time in the shape of a book. It's a uh, net spell. Catches your mind as you read the book. Nets it like a fish, I hope. Then I draw in the net and next thing you know, you're in my time. Your mind is, anyway. Your body stays more or less where it is. You'd like to visit my time, wouldn't you? It's full of interesting things. Knights, squires, jousting quests, that sort of thing. It's the time of King Arthur, the time of Camelot, and the table round, or round table, as people insist on calling it, wrongly. I want you to visit my time. I need you to visit my time. There's a bit of a problem with dragons. Just a small thing. You'll sort it out in no time. You'll find it easy to visit. Just carry on reading this book. That's all there is to it. Turn a few pages and the spell will start to work. That's not too hard, is it? Oh, nearly forgot. When you arrive, you'll find you've become Pip, the adopted child of a freeman farmer called John and his wife Miriam. Pip's been leading a fairly quiet life recently, but all that's about to change. You'll need to bring dice with you. Ordinary six-sided dice, preferably with spots. You'll need one at least, though two would be better. You'll also need a bit of paper something to write with and an eraser. That's the equipment you'll need to get you started. Just go off and collect it now before you do anything else. Then you can begin. I don't know whether I find that intro charming or deeply, deeply irritating. It's certainly unusual in terms of presenting the beginning of a adventure game book, so I did want to have it there in its entirety. And that's, I guess, a sort of pracy. We now move on to the second section, which is the threat to Avalon. And it's interesting that we haven't had any rules yet. So I'm I'm quite intrigued by how it's going to sort of hopefully weave the rules in quite naturally as we go along. So the threat to Avalon. There was always trouble when it rained in August, the first two weeks especially. 
old residenters would look up at the leaden sky and mumble grimly, Rain in August, first week, next year's outlook will be bleak. And anyone who happened to overhear them would be prone to adding the second half of the ancient saw. And if the rain continues on, all hope of peaceful time is gone. Well, it had rained the first week of August last year. And the second. And the third. And the fourth. In fact, it was still raining well into September by which time everybody was thoroughly sick of listening to the old residenters mumbling grimly to themselves. Everybody was thoroughly nervous as well. A wet start to August meant a good breeding season for dragons, and which in turn meant a plague of the fire breathers when they reached maturity the next year. The Knights of the Round Table would do their bit in killing off the pests, of course, but when there was a really good breeding season, there were never enough knights to go round. So the dragons rampaged something shocking, setting Thatcher-like devouring cattle, terrorising villages and carrying off maidens. But that wasn't the only thing. Last August, the August we're talking about, there were omens, as well as rain. At least the old residenters claimed they were omens. Lightning blasted the druid oak on Glastonbury Common twice in succession during a particularly violent storm. Everybody knows that lightning never strikes twice in the same place, muttered the old residenters grimly. That'll be an omen, that be. And there is an image of lightning blasting the druid oak. It's quite a nice picture. Darkened sky, broken oak, some mysterious and intriguing stones with half-visible carvings on. Yeah, very nice. Then there was the business with the gravedigger who managed to bury himself in an open grave. When the funeral procession arrived with the coffin, there was no neat hole for it to go in, only a slight indentation filled with loose earth, and beneath it, the unfortunate gravedigger, now as dead as his former clients. The inquest decided it was an accident, a landslip brought on by all the rain, but the old residenters were far from satisfied. Old Silas would never would have made a mistake like that, they muttered grimly, referring to the late gravedigger. That be an omen, that be. And so it went on throughout the rainy month of August. A massive thunderstone ploughed a deep furrow through Farmer Gabriel's meadow and killed five of his sheep. A two-headed calf was born in the herd that kept the abbey monks supplied with milk. King Arthur's favourite falcon slipped its tie and flew off southwards, never to be seen again. And, for once, it turned out that the old residenters were absolutely right. The following year was absolutely dreadful. Fresh, vigorous young dragons popping up all over the realm, with new ones appearing as fast as the Harris knights could kill the old ones off. But that wasn't the worst of it. The plague of dragons could easily enough be explained by the good breeding season occasioned by the rainy August. The omens pointed towards something else. The old residenters waited patiently, nodding their heads grimly at each new report of dragon damage. That ain't the worst to come, they would say. Not by a long chalk. Kind of amazing that no one has beaten the residenters to death, really. I know this is a time of chivalry, but I can't believe a pseudo-medieval court in the land would convict someone for beating up a professional pessimist. And that's speaking as a professional pessimist. The worst to come came in June, on a cloudless day that promised a long, dry summer. On the morning of that day, a carriage, emblazoned with ecclesiastical insignia, thundered unannounced up to the gates of Camelot, with quite unecclesiastical indications of haste. And there emerged from it, demanding immediate audience with the king, a portly messenger from his eminence, the Archbishop of Canterbury. He was admitted at once, of course, and despite a tendency towards pomposity, 
managed to capture King Arthur's attention with the very first words he spoke. The words were, Your Majesty, a brass dragon has escaped from hell. Now, this was not, of course, precisely true. Brass dragons were extremely rare in Avalon, or anywhere else for that matter, and there was considerable controversy about their origins. Churchmen generally believed they were bred in hell itself, and said so dogmatically whenever the subject arose in conversation. But the infernal origins of the brass dragons had never been satisfactorily proven, and there was a body of opinion which held the beast came from somewhere else. The truth was, no one quite knew for sure, not even the old residenters who thought they knew everything. What everyone did know was that brass dragons were very bad news indeed. Oh, good lord, this is... Uh, settle in, people. Sorry, we've still got pages and pages of this to go. This is, compared to the usual fighting fantasy, someone done a bad, you got a sword, off you go, good luck. This is expansive indeed. So, uh, yes... We'll, we'll just have to knuckle down and get through it together. A word about dragons may not go amiss here, since not everyone is personally familiar with the breed. Your average, run-of-the-mill dragon, the sort that mates in August if it's raining, is a grey-skinned, scaled and ridge-backed reptile, weighing somewhere around six tonnes and growing to a length of five metres. There are two main species, those that move on four feet and are fully equipped with claws, and those which move mainly by means of their two hind legs and use their shortened front legs rather like arms. The latter type, which are generally more intelligent, have claws only on the hind feet. The forefeet have developed into hands of a sort. Both species are aggressive, vicious, and extremely difficult to kill on account of their heavy scaling, which acts as natural armour. Both are meat-eaters, which accounts for the devoured cattle and probably the missing maidens. Both share the curious habit of consuming foliage from chestnut trees during the first hour and 15 minutes after sunrise. The business with the chestnut trees has nothing to do with hunger. Leaves consumed at this time do not travel down the normal digestive tract, does not open until two hours after sleep, but go instead into a second stomach set forward and a little below that which the reptile uses to digest food. Here, in this second stomach, the leaves are converted into sedimentary layers of hummus, which, encouraged by the dragon's body heat, give off vast quantities of methane gas. Methane, as you probably know, is highly inflammable. What you may not know is that once a dragon is four months old, it develops crystalline extrusions on its upper fangs and a thin layer of natural metallic capping on the lower. The results of these developments is that when the dragon snaps its jaws together sharply, it produces a spark. This spark will normally ignite the almost continuous flow of methane from the second stomach, producing the fiery dragon breath, which is such a distinctive feature of the breed. I don't know about you listeners, but I feel as though I could pass a short exam on the dietary and behavioural habits of dragons, which are of course completely made up, meaning that this extensive knowledge is of no actual value to me, nor am I ever actually going to be asked to sit an exam on it. Although it's possible that some point later in the book, some element of dragon ecology may prove to be enormously important. We can only hope so, because otherwise this is really rather self-indulgent. Charming, I think it is charming, but very self-indulgent. 
All in all, dragons are very formidable creatures, but brass dragons make ordinary dragons look like pussycats. There have been only five authenticated appearances of brass dragons in the whole of recorded human history. Two in Asia, one in Europe, one in Spain, and one which turned up in Londinium before the Romans left. In every instance, the destruction wrought was massive. Three quarters of a Londinium was demolished or ravaged by fire, and 17 of the very finest Roman legions completely wiped out before the beast stupidly consumed the entire stock of an alehouse and drowned after falling drunkenly into the Thames in a alcohol-related catastrophe that is similar to how I'm going to die, I can't help but feel. While the natural history of the ordinary dragon is relatively well known, no one really has the least idea where brass dragons come from, what laws govern their abrupt appearance, or how to get rid of them when they do appear. Typically, a brass dragon will turn up out of the blue, run riot for several months or years, then simply disappear. The drowned dragon of Londinium was unusual in the way it met its fate. No one ever succeeded in killing one, neither knight nor commoner. One reason for this noteworthy failure is there is every indication brass dragons may be magic. No wonder the church considered they escaped from hell. A brass dragon! gasped King Arthur. There is a picture of King Arthur allegedly gasping, but mostly it would appear to be stroking his beard as if le the, uh, the emissary from... Canterbury had said something requiring the response, Chini Recon, which I apologise if you're not from the UK and of a certain age. That will make no sense to you, but trust me, that's exactly what he looks like. He escaped from hell, confirmed the Archbishop's messenger grimly, at which the pent-up tensions of the court exploded abruptly, and everybody began to talk at once, swoon, scream, run, and otherwise react to the news. It was pandemonium. King Arthur had to wait for order to be restored before he heard the whole story. First off, there was absolutely no doubt about the monster really being a brass dragon. Although rare, the species was quite unmistakable. For a start, they grow more than twice the size of ordinary dragons, and their colour, far from grey, is a metallic brass which glints and sparkles in the sunshine. Then there was the magic. Brass dragons have generally been credited with all sorts of wonders, including the power of speech. No one had heard this particular brass dragon talk yet, and its wonders were so far confined to the now-you-see-it-now-you-don't variety appearing and disappearing without anybody knowing where it came from or where it went to. But this was more than enough to establish that it was magic, or at least one of those tedious, tedious people who insists on doing illusions and magic tricks at parties. Maybe the brass dragon isn't magic, maybe it's just very, very boring. The first reported sighting of the beast was near a forest close by Winchester, where it was apparently amusing itself by demolishing a woodsman's hut. The artisan who saw it had drink taken, so his story was given less credence than it might, even though the wreckage of the hut was plainly there for all to see. The creature next turned up briefly in Cornwall, although how King Arthur, who had relatives in Cornwall, missed hearing about it was a mystery. Several fishermen, pulling out in pursuit of the day's catch, noticed it clinging to a cliff face. Since they were sober men, as sailors have to be, 
It's news to me. Their word was believed, although a party of men-at-arms sent to investigate could discover not a hint of anything on or near the cliff. There was what might have been a third manifestation far to the north, where something, although no one could say exactly what, had torn huge holes in the remains of Hadrian's Wall, that vast rampart left by the Romans to keep the greedy Scots from marching south to sell the English whisky. Okay, that's, that's uh, yeah, that's a genuinely good line. But the worst of it was the attack on Kern Abbas Monastery, that ancient seat of learning overlooked by a very rude picture of a giant carved into a hillside in prehistoric times. It was from that very hillside that the brass dragon had approached. The survivors claimed that it was large as a castle, with eyes the size of soup plates and flaming breath more than a hundred metres long. The ground shook with every step it took. Its roar was like thunder, and so on. All greatly exaggerated, no doubt, as these things tend to be, but the fact remained that Kern Abbas Monastery was no more. The stonework was demolished as if struck down by an army of battering rams. The woodwork was burned to cinders. All the tapestries, rush matting, curtaining, and a priceless library of books, manuscripts, and scrolls went up in smoke. The abbot was burned to death trying to save a relic of the true cross from the monastery chapel. 178 monks were trapped beneath the fallen rubble. Herds of cattle and sheep lay dead and mangled in the monastery fields. Even the kitchen garden at the back was buried under a pile of evil-swelling manure, which, unlike normal manure, killed off plants rather than encouraged their growth. There's some nice details in this about the English landscape, which I am very much enjoying. Out of this whole disaster, only two young monks escaped with their lives. They'd been sent on a ten-mile hike as penance for talking in chapel, which just goes to show it doesn't pay to be good all the time. And the only artefact that was saved was a stained-glass window depicting the Holy Grail. Since this should certainly have been broken, its survival was seen as confirmation that the destruction was the devil's work the devil being unable to harm anything as holy as the Holy Grail. This was a catastrophe of almost unimaginable proportions, and there was no doubt a brass dragon had been involved. Although the two young monks saw nothing of it, the creature's rampage had been witnessed, at a safe distance, by no fewer than 80 pilgrims from Londinium, who were travelling to Kern Abbas to view the same relic which had been the death of the abbot. When news reached the archbishop, who was usually the last to be told anything due to his fiery temper, it produced a predictable reaction. His language was so extreme that one church warden was heard to remark he would personally have preferred to face a dragon any day. But sharp tempers are quick to abate, and the archbishop was no fool. He realised that if a brass dragon was on the loose, something had to be done about it, and quickly. Thus, when he had regained control of himself, he dispatched a messenger to Camelot. The same messenger, who now related the whole sorry tale to King Arthur. And the king, who was one of those firmly convinced brass dragons were magical by nature, in turn dispatched a messenger of his own. That messenger was instructed to find the wizard Merlin. Well, the good news is that we're now at the end of the first prologue. The bad news, as you may have guessed, is that we now have a second prologue itself, quite a number of pages long, that we also have to get through. 
So um, I've been recording for well over 20 minutes and I've yet to make a meaningful decision, which is definitely a fantastic fight's record. So prologue two in Merlin's Crystal Cave. I'm starting to regret recording this on a Saturday afternoon because the Eurovision Song Contest's on tonight and at this rate I'll still be blearily reading as the inevitable null point come in for the Great British entry. Anyway, Merlin's Crystal Cave. You open your eyes groggily. Light flickers and flashes in mad patterns as if you'd fallen into a giant kaleidoscope. Colours shimmer and dance, blending into delicate traceries and patterns. Your right cheek stings as if someone had been slapping you. Come on, come on, no time to waste. A white-bearded old man is leaning over you, his pointed hat askew. Behind him, the dancing colours form a rainbow halo. What? You ask, stupidly. Come on, Pip, the white-bearded man says crossly. Just pull yourself together. And don't pretend you don't recognise me. You do, or, or you will. Merlin, got that? Merlin, say Merlin. Uh, Merlin, you echo, frowning. Well, that's it, Merlin. Good, fine, we're making progress. And your pip, he points a bony finger at his chest. Me, Merlin, you, pip. Me, Merlin, you, pip, you, pip. Me, pip, you, Merlin you repeat, feeling a bit of a fool. God, they've got my characterization absolutely right. That's exactly how I feel almost all the time. You sit up. You are in the strangest place you have ever seen, a vast cavern of pure crystal. Crystal stalagmites rise up from the floor. Crystal stalactites hang down from the roof. The walls are rough, unworked outcrops of crystal. The roof is crystal. The floor is crystal. You've been lying on a large rectangular slab. That too is crystal. The cavern is well lit by torches. How many torches you could not begin to guess, for each one reflects and reflects again in the crystal, making it impossible to count. You turn your head slowly. Portions of the natural crystal have been worked and cut into shapes. These are crystal tables, crystal benches, even what looks suspiciously like a crystal throne on a crystal dais. Even the cabinets and chests are crystal, so that their contents can easily be seen within them. Instead of a picture of this, the artist has chosen to just do a picture of Merlin, who looks like a comedy wizard in a pointy hat. Merlin, you say again? Is it you? Yes, yes, Merlin mutters impatiently. Quite definitely me, and in grave danger of having my pension docked. Dreadful business, are you properly awake? You nod dumbly, still three-quarter ways, entranced by your surroundings. Merlin catches your look. My crystal cave, he explains. Interesting, isn't it? Very few people have ever been here, you know, except for me. Very few. I brought Attila the Hun once, but he broke some of the furniture, so I don't do much entertaining here now. It's mainly used for magic. The crystal focuses earth energies, you know, and that makes magic easier. Now, are you properly awake? You nod again. Properly awake or not, you are still quite confused. Well, says Merlin, now you're here, I'd better tell you what the trouble is. A brass dragon, that's what the trouble is. Wiped out an entire monastery, monks and all. Probably deserved it, of course. 
can't stand monks myself, always creeping around in cloisters instead of doing anything useful. But the archbishop was annoyed, and the king wants to keep on the right side of him, so my pension will be docked unless we do something about it. Well, unless you do something about it, that is, Pip. Definitely a job for a fighter, this. Someone who knows about getting rid of brass dragons. You do know about getting rid of brass dragons, don't you? You shake your head. No. Never mind, you soon will. The trick with brass dragons is to kill them before they kill you. That's all there is to it, really. Except for closing the gateway, of course. Gateway? That was you again, thoroughly confused. Gateway, Merlin says. You aren't one of those idiots who think brass dragons come from hell, are you? No, you say warily, although in truth you haven't the faintest idea where brass dragons come from. Good, says Merlin, because they don't. They come from the ghastly kingdom of the dead. Every one of them, yes, indeed, without exception. The ghastly kingdom of the dead is what you might call their natural habitat. And a very nasty natural habitat it is, but that's a different story. So, when you find a brass dragon wandering around Avalon, or anywhere else on Earth for that matter, it follows that one of the gateways to the ghastly kingdom must be open. Otherwise the dragon couldn't get out, could it? So we, you that is, must kill the dragon, then close the gateway. Nothing else for it. If we, you, leave the gateway open, heaven knows what else might get out. Brass dragons aren't the worst you'll find in the ghastly kingdom of the dead. That's why they call it ghastly. So off you go now and get this mess cleared up. I'll trot off to Camelot and tell the king that everything's in hand. Just a minute, you protest. Merlin holds up one skinny hand. I, you're right, you're right. You need life points. Can't do much in my time without them, can you? No, no, no indeed. Right, now roll your dice. Two dice once or one die twice, doesn't matter which. You roll the dice while Merlin watches with a gimlet eye, so I, I suppose we will roll some dice. 30 minutes into the recording session. So I've rolled the dice. Now add the scores together, he tells you. You won't get less than two and you can't get more than 12. That's the way it is with life points. With your life points, anyway. Now multiply your answer by four. Well, I've rolled a 10, so that makes 40. That's your life points. Write them down, quickly now. He looks around him furtively as if he might be worried someone was listening, then leans forward and whispers something in your ear. If you don't think you have enough, do the whole thing again. You can do it three times if you want and pick the best score. But not more than three times. More than that interferes with the spell. And we don't want that, do we? No, not when my pension's at stake. Okay, so that's cool. Like my usual technique is to, you know, roll a few and pick the decent scores. So I like a book that encourages me to do the same. So I've got six, that's not as good as my ten. And an eight, that's not as good as my ten. So Merlin straightens up and goes on much more loudly. Now, fighting. There's going to be a lot of fighting, I'm afraid. But at least it's not as painful as fighting in your own world. 
You just roll dice for you and your opponent. Quite easy, really. Two dice each time. Look, I'll make it simple for you. First, you roll dice to see who has the first strike. Roll for your opponent, then for yourself. Highest score gets hit first. You always do that unless surprise comes into it. And if it does, you'll be told so at the time, so that's all right. Next, you roll two dice each time a strike is made. If you're rolling for your strike, you have to roll a six or better. Otherwise, you've missed. When you're rolling for your opponent, you'll be told what he, she or it needs to hit you. If it isn't mentioned, take it that they need a six as well. Anything you roll above the strike figure counts as damage. Damage is subtracted from your or your opponent's life points. That's how you fight. Or at least that's how it goes with a fist fight. If you're using weapons, you do more damage. If you're wearing armour, it cuts down on damage. And since you'll be using this, you'll generally only need a four or better to hit somebody. This turns out to be something rather interesting. Merlin takes a wooden case from beneath one of the crystal tables and opens it carefully. Inside is the most beautifully made little sword you have ever seen. So we're rolling for a six plus on two dice to hit, except when we're using our sword, which is presumably going to be most of the time when we need a four. Nice, simple combat system. I approve. So, uh, have you read Castle of Darkness? No, I have not. But I am at least getting to turn to a different paragraph. So, I'm guessing that the adventure is is on the verge of beginning. 35 minutes into the record. Now this, says Merlin, is Excalibur Jr. A very special sword. Made him myself, so I should know. He is an exact model of King Arthur's sword. An exact model, except smaller. And he talks, unlike King Arthur's Excalibur, non-stop sometimes. Say hello to Pip, EJ. To your amazement, the sword says dutifully, hello, Pip. In something akin to awe, you reach out and take hold of the sword. It feels beautifully balanced, light but powerful. Wow, you remark using an expression that isn't much heard in King Arthur's time, but Merlin seems to understand it. Wow, indeed, he says. When you use that sword, you only need to roll a four on two dice to hit somebody. It's part of the magic. And you score an additional five points of damage over and above any the dice may show. That's part of the magic too. Is that it? You ask, frowning. I have to say, I'm not massively enthused by the prospect of a talking sword. I've met talking swords in literature before, and they're all awful. Is that it? you ask, frowning. No, says Merlin. No, indeed. Mustn't be impatient. Sometimes you'll find that a creature isn't as evil as it looks, and that it doesn't want to fight you. To find out, roll one die once for your opponent, and one die three times for yourself. If you score less than your enemy has given you a friendly reaction, and you can continue on your way. If it all gets too much for you, you can try getting some life points back by sleeping. It's not quite as simple as it sounds, though. And you can only do it when you're not in battle. Roll one die. If you get a one, two, three, or four, you must turn to the dream time at the back of the book, where you might lose even more life points. If you get a five or six, you've slept successfully and can get two dice rolls of life points back. It's a bit of a gamble, really. But generally, you'll be far too busy fighting to sleep, so you'll need your equipment and weapons. And magic? You say quickly, wondering what you're getting yourself into. And magic. Won't get far against the brass dragon without magic. Right, take this. So we've got another 
system, which is dreaming. I mean, that sounds awesome. I'd quite like to build an entire game around that. But yeah, it is another another system that's explained in a slightly odd bit of the book. And magic, you say quickly, wondering what you are getting yourself into. And magic won't get far against a brass dragon without magic. Right, take this. And from the depths of his robe, a powder blue robe, not his usual white one, he pulls out a scroll which he hands to you. You unroll the scroll, which, like most of Merlin's scrolls, is written on excellent quality parchment, but marred by blots. Though you may have hoped it to be a magical scroll, it is not. However, it does have your name on. You look up at Merlin, frowning. What's this? He seems embarrassed and does not meet your eye. Your shopping list? Just a few items that you might need? Why does it have the cost beside each one? Merlin coughs. I'm afraid you're going to have to buy your gear. Since the king docked my pension, I can't afford to equip you. So you'll have to buy your own. But I don't have any money, you protest. That is quite true, and that might be a real problem if I hadn't foreseen it. He opens a small crystal cabinet and takes from it two transparent cubes, on which closer inspection you see to be dice. Magic dice, he explains shortly. They convert enthusiasm into money. Can't use them myself since I haven't much enthusiasm left after the king docked my pension. But a young person like you should have lots of enthusiasm. Yes, except that I'm a 41-year-old man, largely ground down and beaten by life. So uh, I foresee this magical way of getting money or equipment working about as well as my real-world efforts to secure money over the years. A young person like you should have lots of enthusiasm, he says. He hands you the dice. Throw them firmly onto the ground. There's nothing else for it but to throw the dice. As you do so, they explode in a silent flash of golden light. But just before the explosion, you could see the score. Roll your own dice to find out what was in it. Every point scored represents a gold piece, and one gold piece is equal to ten silver pieces. Looks as though you might be able to afford some equipment after all. So, how much money have I managed to conjure up with my boundless youthful enthusiasm? Five gold pieces. So, 50 silver pieces to spend. There is a list of things that I might want to buy. I'm not going to... Okay, let's just run through the list really, really quickly. So, weapons, which are really expensive and I'm not going to buy... I could buy a battle axe, a dagger, a flail, a warhammer, a lance, a mace, a sword. I could buy chainmail. I could buy leather. I could buy plate. I could buy a backpack, a carpentry hammer, an axe, a rope, torches, water bag, tent, sack, blanket, lamp, container of oil, climbing spikes, fish hooks, harp, loot, horn, bandages, knife, tinderbox, stakes, change of clothes, change of boots, parchment, quill and powdered ink, food pack, cooking utensils, or a healing potion. So I get to make a decision. Let's just carry on with the reading before we decide what I'm actually going to buy. Merlin coughs again. Weapons too and armour if you want it. He produces a second scroll. Afraid weapons and armour quite expensive these days. You look at the two parchment lists and then look at Merlin with a distinctly sinking feeling. This is going to be a costly mission. What you must do now is spend your money wisely to equip yourself for the adventure to follow. 
Take a little time to decide what you might need. Obviously a weapon of some sort is a high priority for those times when EJ is uncooperative or a different weapon is more suitable than a sword. Ah, oh, what? You can't use more than one weapon at a time though. If your life points are low, it might be worthwhile investing in some armour, although it's very costly. And that means you'll have little or nothing left for other necessities. If you've been through the Castle of Darkness, which I have not, and have the magical dragon skin jacket, you can put armour on top and have extra protection. Don't forget you may have to travel a long way to find this rampaging brass dragon, so a supply of food might be a good idea. I do love food, unless you plan to live off the land, but it's entirely up to you what you decide to buy, just so long as you have the gold to cover it. Write down the things you're taking on your quest journal, and remember, if it isn't on your list, you can't use it. If you have any money left over, which seems unlikely, write that down too. Money can come in very handy on a long journey. Don't like the... Uh, possibility of my sword being repeatedly unhelpful. So I will, I guess, buy a weapon. So I'll buy a mace because like any good role player, I know that if you've got a sharp weapon, what you really want to go with that is a blunt weapon. Sharp weapons are for zombies, blunt weapons are for skeletons. So I'll buy a mace, which does four points of damage. And that's 20 silver. About 30 silver left. Um, I can't afford any armour, so I'm going to pause the recording for a moment while I work out which of the various unhelpful or helpful items I want to take. Okay, I've gone through the big old shopping list and I've gone for backpack, rope, 10 rations, because I do love my rations, Tinderbox, climbing spikes, a tent, a water bag, blankets, stakes, and a lamp. And some bandages. Right, well, I've got six silver left over. Well now, says Merlin, all set, look you back. Lapsing into his native Welsh in his impatience to get you going so he can reclaim his pension. I think so, you say uncertainly. Except that I don't really know where to go. Gloriously, you've all been spared my efforts to do both an old man and a Welsh accent at the same time. So I'm committed to just doing the old man accent now, but uh, oh, imagine the fun we'd have had. I think I'm ready, you say uncertainly, except I don't really know where to go. Don't worry about that, Merlin says. I've been following up on that stupid monster on my crystal ball, and I know where it's hiding out. Dragon Cavern. Quite obvious, really. Most of them hide out in Dragon Cavern between bouts of pillaging and so forth. The place is full of dragons of one sort or another, and maidens, of course, but only one brass dragon, which is the one you want, so don't waste your time hacking at the other dragons unless they attack you, which they probably will. I don't know how to get to Dragon Cavern, you protest. Not to worry, Merlin says cheerfully. I'll draw you a map. You said you'd teach me magic, you say bluntly. Magic! Merlin cries, striking his forehead a resounding blow. Yes, magic, of course. Good thing for you I remembered. You won't last long in the dragon cavern without a bit of magic. Standing on the hem of his powder blue robe, he half runs, in his impatience, to a crystal bookshelf, from which he takes down a large, leather-bound tome entitled Magic for Beginners. He begins to thumb through it hurriedly. Sit still, he says. Don't fidget. Got something to write with? Good, then write this down. These are the rules of magic. Rule 1. Every spell you try and cast will cost you three life points, whether it works or not. 
Rule 2. No spell can be thrown more than three times in any adventure. Once thrown, it is used up, whether successful or not. Rule 3. No spell works at all unless you score seven or more with a throw of two dice. You nod busily, writing down the rules of magic. They seem simple enough, except for one thing. But I don't know any spells, you say. Of course you don't. Wouldn't have to learn them if you did. I'm going to give you a book of spells. Not this one, don't worry. It's too heavy to carry. A little one that will fit into your backpack. Just a very few spells, but well chosen. You can have a quick look through it before you start off, if you like. So we've got Pip's first spell book, which lists... It goes on for a couple of pages. So I'm not going to go through them in detail because I'm already very tired, but... Let's um, do a, a summary. So we've got Pip's armor of nearly impenetrable coruscation, panic for short, uh, which basically works like plate armor. Usefully doesn't tell you how long it lasts. Pip's outlandish wallop or pow for short, uh, which plus 10 damage. Pip's instant levity and laughter makes them fall about laughing. So they miss three turns during combat. That's pretty good. Pip's attacking dart, magical dart, never misses. Provided a spell is cast, causes 10 damage. Pip's immunity to poison. Pip, for short, oddly enough. If you cast it before poison, you become immune, but does nothing if you cast it after poison is taken. Pip's instant neutralizer, which is your is pin, for short. This is your counter spell. Pip's immediate rapid repeater. Pi R squared, for short. Oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear. Pi R squared. Oh, oh. Oh, oh, God, that hurts. Which allows you to attack twice in combat. Very special invisibility, which can only be used once, costs 15 life points, and you can only use it where you're told, and that makes you totally invisible, and you can only use it once. And you've got Fire Finger, causes a bolt of lightning to emerge from your finger and zap 10 life points from an enemy, and gives you 10 Fire Finger bolts, but you can only use it once. And Fireball is another one-use spell, which does 75 points of damage. So you get two Fireballs, one in each hand, and they do 75 points of damage, but yeah, you, you only get one. But you can keep the Fireball, you know, put it in your pocket, I guess, and use it later. That's it, says Merlin. That's your magic. That's your spells. You can use each one three times only, unless you find another copy, of course. That sometimes happens during an adventure, so keep your eyes peeled. Not much to magic, really, as long as you remember the basic rule. Never use a spell when you're nearly dead. Otherwise, the loss of life points will kill you. Make your roll to find out if the spell worked. If it didn't, it didn't. There's nothing you can do about it unless you want to try again. And not more than three times. Precious things, spells. It's why you don't find many wizards about. It's very frustrating as a profession. Fraught with all sorts of trials, tribulations and dangers, like getting your pension docked. You're nearly ready to leave now, Pip. I'm nearly ready to die of old age. But first I must tell you about experience. Every time you fight a battle or solve a puzzle, you will gain one experience point. Twenty of these make one permanent life point, which can be added to your existing life points, even if this brings them higher than they were to start with. You can take up to ten permanent life points into future adventures and add them to the life points you roll up. And here he withdraws a parchment scroll stained with age, or possibly tea, and displaying all the familiar blots from the sleeve of his robe. Finally, let it be finally, finally, he says, your map. This is a copy 
of a very rare and ancient map, which I made myself. The copy, that is, not the ancient map. Don't lose it, or you won't know where to go. It shows you how to get to Dragon Cavern. Not many people know how to get there. In fact, I may be the only one. But now you'll know the secret too. Prepare for your trip carefully, so far as you can afford to. Then follow the map. Once you're in Dragon Cavern, I'm afraid you'll have to fend for yourself. No one's ever managed to map it, so you'll have to make your own way once you're in there. But uh, use this map to get there. Off you go now. And Merlin, for all his bumbling and foolishness, is still the greatest wizard in Avalon, waves his arms in a magical gesture, slowly, but with an awesome inevitability. Both he and the crystal cave begin to fade completely away. Something is nudging you in the back. You turn and find yourself staring into the soulful brown eyes of Wandering Wonder, your favourite cow in the small herd, now owned by your adopted parents, Freeman John and good wife Mary. And if this is a Wandering Wonder, then the pasture in which you are now standing must be the backfield of the farm on which you live. How on earth did you get here? Only Merlin could say. But you glance down at your feet, you find the various items of equipment you decided to spend your gold on in the crystal cave. More to the point, clasped in your hot little hand is a tea-stained scroll on which has been drawn a map. There's a picture of the map. It is effectively a picture of a cow, a lot of blank space, with dotted lines wandering through the blank space, and then various numbered sections at the end of those lines. Isn't that the oddest-looking map you've ever seen in your life? Not at all like the maps they plaster all over the walls in geography class. Just dotted lines that might be roads, or, or might not. And section numbers. How did Merlin know where you'd be when you started the map? Not even Merlin, he said it was an ancient copy of a map. How did the ancient map maker know where you'd be? Or that Wandering Wonder would be nudging you in the back, and yet there you are, marked with an X, and there's Wonder large as life well a bit smaller than life actually still it's all he's given you and the crystal cave has disappeared so you'd better use it simply pick a route and follow it until you come to a numbered section then turn directly to that section and find out where you are and what's happening to you don't forget to take your equipment and weapons and spells you'll notice the entrance to the dragon's cave isn't actually marked perhaps because it's secret but it must be there somewhere maybe in one of those sections you're just going to have to travel and find out. Because whatever it is, the adventure begins. I have been recording for an hour. Okay, we've got a choice of four sections. And no real clue as to which one might be the most useful. So I am going to start with the one that's closest to the cow on the map. I think I might go and get myself a little cup of tea as well before we get into the meat of it. Okay, I've got myself a cup of tea. Let's find out what this opening salvo of the adventure has in store. It's a dead end. Would you believe that anybody could do a thing like that? Fancy putting a complete dead end on the map and you've trudged for miles to get here. Frey does nothing else for it but to trudge miles all the way back again and try another route. You know, there are odd occasions in this project where I do sort of find myself asking, what are you doing with your life? What on earth are you doing with your life? Let's go back and have a look at the old map. 
So uh, we'll work our way around anti-clockwise and see if the next section is another hilarious dead end or whether we might actually be able to embark on some kind of proper adventure. You seem to be approaching a town, Pip. Well, a village, really. The first thing you see is the steeple of the village church. And then later, as you continue trudging wearily along, the thatched roofs of the cottages come into sight. The only thing is that however far you walk, you don't seem to be coming any nearer. You walk, and you walk, and you walk without avail. The village is still there, but somehow still distant. This definitely has the smell of magic, Pip. Better roll your magic dice to find out if there's some way in. So, heaven forfend, we should be allowed to puzzle our way through. Let's roll some dice. I roll a three, and that sends me to one particular outcome. Choice of three. Broadly evenly spaced. You seem to have walked for miles, with the village still in sight, but no nearer. Now you are exhausted and hungry, so you decide to rest and eat some of your rations. You leave the track and sit on the grass, your back against a tree stump, near a little copse. There is a clear stream nearby where you can drink. The village remains in sight, no nearer and no further. As you open your pack, a voice behind you says, Good morrow, your honour. You spring up, hand reaching for your sword, then hesitate. A tiny little man dressed in brown and green has emerged from the copse and is looking at you with dark, twinkling eyes. He does not carry arms and certainly does not seem to be dangerous. He looks worryingly like a leprechaun to me. And as we all know, leprechauns are one of the very worst things that can happen to an adventurer. That's a fine-looking bit of grub you have there, your honour, says the little man. A morsel or two would go down well with a fellow who hasn't eaten in a week. Do you want to share your rations with a tiny trencherman, or do you point out politely that you have a long way to go and will need the food for yourself? Well, I guess I will offer to share because I don't want to be trapped in some kind of nightmarish sequence of hilarious practical jokes. That's mighty civil of you, your honour says the little man. I don't mind if I do, now you mention it. And he climbs up on the stump and makes himself comfortable. As he eats, and he eats very heartily for someone of his size, he eyes you, your clothes and your weapons. Would I be right in supposing, he says eventually, that you're a traveller on an adventure? You nod. Didn't I think so by the look of you? You're not on your way to Dragon Cavern by any chance. You want to tell him that's where you're headed? Will you keep your business to yourself? I guess I'll tell him because I have no idea where Dragon Cavern is. So I kind of need a clue. And I'm not going to get a clue by refusing to ask anyone where Dragon Cavern is. Also, and I cannot stress this enough, I don't want to be trapped in some kind of sequence of hilarious practical jokes. As ever, I do apologise to the fine, fine people of Ireland for my grotesque butchering of a comedy Irish accent. That's a dangerous place to be going to, to be sure, remarks the little man, and difficult to get to if you don't know the way. Although, then again, anywhere is difficult to get to if you don't know the way. Do you know the way, you ask quickly, this being the first indication that you might still be on the right road. I do that, says the little man, at least in theory, for I've never been there myself and I never want to either. But if you're determined, sure wouldn't I be a poor man if I didn't put you on the right track in token of your generosity. But I'm afraid you're going to have to go through that village yonder. Why do you say afraid? You ask, frowning. 
Because it's a place you'd do well to keep out of. Now, unlike the Dragon Cavern, I have been to Stone Martin Village. That being the name of the cursed place. And lucky I was to get away from it with a whole skin. Still, if you want to reach the Dragon Cavern, there's nothing else for it but to go through the village. I've been heading toward the village, you tell him, but I don't seem to be getting any closer. No, you wouldn't, and that's for sure. There's only one way in, and a lot of folks miss it altogether. So it's lucky that you and me met, for I can tell you the right road. With which he leans across and whispers something in your ear. You thank the little man, pack up your belongings, careful not to leave any litter, and trudge off in search of the village. Yes, I approve of him saying that we don't litter. When I rule the world, littering will carry the death penalty. And we have survived an encounter with a leprechaun without being subjected to any kind of ribald tomfoolery, so I'm going to count that as a win as well. What's this? It might be a heat haze, except that weather isn't all that hot, and a heat haze doesn't behave like that. It might be a heat haze, except that it's not, effectively. It's a shimmer in the air ahead of you, but a shimmer with clear edges two metres high, more than a metre wide, looks like a doorway, a shimmering doorway. Beyond it stands the village, distant as ever. Will you enter the shimmering doorway, or will you carefully walk round it? Well, I guess I'm going to enter it, because we need to go to the village. A blink, a flicker, you are in the village, Pip. No doubt about that. Right here, without walking another step. How strange. It's a pretty village. Small, but pretty. Thatched cottages, village green, a picturesque little stone-built church, and not a soul about, or not a living soul. You're standing on a patch of beaten earth, a little rutted and muddy, as if it was used fairly often. There's a long building to the northeast of you, and due east, the hottest garden you've ever seen. All the plants seem to be made from stone. And there are statues of monsters dotted through it. Beyond the garden are cottages, and beyond the cottages you can see the church spire. The entire village is enclosed by a stout wooden stockade, very sturdily built, and by the looks of it, extremely difficult to climb. To the southeast are more cottages and a high stone wall. Turn to the map of the village at the front of the book. You are free to explore as you wish. Go anywhere, see anything. The buildings and a few other places are all numbered, so you know which section to turn to as you explore each one. Oh, and uh, one more thing, Pip. Have you noticed that there isn't a way out? Oh, that's intriguing. That's very intriguing. I have to confess that when I went to this this section and saw that there wasn't a, an option to go to another section at the end, I thought I might have already failed. Like, after an hour of recording preamble and ten minutes of recording actual gameplay, and was about to throw a very, very small tantrum. But, happily, it, it's, it's something much more interesting. I think this is a really clever, clever way of doing a built-up area. So, uh, the map of Stone Martin Village. It's got a little X where we enter. You can see all the fixtures. There's there's a lot of houses and places we can explore, actually. There's, yeah, a great many places. There's various houses in the stockade that surrounds the village. So there's like one, two, three, four of those we could go and look at. There's another one, two, three, four, five, six, seven... 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 little 
houses we could also individually explore. There's a well, there's the garden with the statues in that you can see, there's the, the church, there's what looks to be, I guess, kind of a monastery type bit. Yeah, there's a graveyard. So, oh, where will we go? Well, I am going to go to the church first of all, because it's the first place I go whenever I visit a picturesque village in real life. So let's go to the church. This is like no church you've ever been in, Pip. At least it is, but it isn't. There's an aisle and pews and an altar and an organ and a pulpit and a lectern and all the rest right down to the stained glass windows. But the whole kit and caboodle is covered thick with dust and cobwebs. They're everywhere. They brush against your face as you move and the dust rises in little clouds from under your feet. This does not look like a very religious community, Pip. You step forward and... Da-da-da-da-da! That's an organ. The church organ has started to play. You start and swing around at the sound. Your eyes sweep upwards towards the organ loft, but the cobwebs obscure your view. <laughs> maniac laughter. Slightly less maniac than I would normally do because I could see it peaking even as I did that more subdued maniac laughter and I don't want to create a nightmare for my future editing. Maniac laughter. It echoes throughout the entire building as the organ music stops abruptly. You drop your hand involuntarily to your sword hilt, which is just as well because swinging from a rope high above you is a cloaked and masked figure carrying a glittering blade. Beware! It screams as it lands only a few metres in front of you. Beware the phantom of the village church! With which it lunges at you viciously with a sword. This is definitely a fight, Pip, whatever you may think. A phantom has 30 life points but wears no armour, so you score full damage each time you hit. As against that, it's good with a sword and only needs to roll a 5 or better to hit you. Its sword does plus 3 damage. Okay, so suddenly the, the illusion of pseudo-medieval adventures is abruptly shattered by a reference to 19th century French horror literature. Um, but regardless... It could be worse. I mean, it could be Gerard Butler trying to sing. So let's all count our mercies, shall we? And I'm going to pause and roll some dice if I can remember how to actually do the combat system. Okay, I have defeated the Phantom of the Village Church. Um, did 20 points of damage to me. And looking back, I should blatantly have used a spell to even the odds. That is problematic. But anyway, I have I have killed the phantom. So that's nice to find out what happens. Hopefully some kind of healing. That is certainly one dead phantom. By the time this adventure is over, everybody will be calling you Pip the Phantom Slayer. If they aren't calling you Pip the Dragon Slayer, of course. Of course, they might even be shaking their heads and saying, Poor old Pip. Did rather well, but the monster's got the best of it eventually. But enough of that. There's a church to search. And search it you do, but there's not a penny or a sovereign or a sixpence to be found anywhere, not even in the collection box. There is, however, a ring on the finger of the phantom, which you carefully remove and put on your finger. It tingles as you do so. A tingle ring. A magic ring. 
You have no way of telling. Just be glad you got it and hope it may come in useful later. It had better because you can't get it off your finger now. Press on, Pip. Press on. Return to your map and explore some other part of the village. Okay, so we've got magic ring. These are usually very, very useful things. So anyway, the church, a bit of a bust. So um, cool. I will go and have a look at a random house. So it's the house nearest the church. So in theory, I don't have far to go. Halt, varlet! Durst thou disturb my meditations? It's not what you might expect to hear on entering a country cottage, but that's what you do hear on entering this one, and the words come from a figure clad head to toe in jet black armour. Could this be the notorious and highly dangerous Black Knight, whose name is spoken of in terrified whispers throughout Avalon? Have you previously travelled through Wizard Anselm's dark castle? I have not. That was in a previous book. Uh, you can speak politely to the armoured figure and then just retreat to the map and explore somewhere else, which I think uh, is what I'm going to do because I don't particularly want a name for myself by challenging a Black Knight to battle. At least not yet. I can go back and do that at some other point. So let's have a look at... Ooh, I mean, as a part-time goth, I kind of want to go and have a look at the cemetery. So let's do that, even though I feel like bad things will happen. Why would anyone in their right mind want to explore this place? It's a graveyard, Pip. You knew it was a graveyard. You could see that quite plainly before you decided to come here. What on earth do you expect to find in a graveyard? Dead people? Well, what you have found is graves and tombstones and... Oh dear. Looks like you've done it again, Pip. That grave over there is open. As you watch, a hand reaches up out of it and scrabbles at loose earth by the graveside. Rush to another section before the thing gets you. Um, okay. What ghastly corpse will emerge from the open grave? What mouldering monster? What vicious vampire? What ghastly ghoul? Avast there, matey. Give us a hand, then. It's either a very fresh corpse or the gravedigger. You decide it must be the gravedigger, and since he's the only relatively normal soul you've seen in Stone Martin Village, apart from the fact he's crawling out of a grave, that is, you decide to give him a hand. And he comes up. A portly, bearded man with a distinctly florid face and a nautical air about him, not to mention the scent of rum on his breath, which might explain how he came to fall into the open grave. Thank ye kindly, me brave young gallant. A man in my condition doesn't find it all that easy to climb out of a grave. Cedric's the name. Long John Cedric, they call me, on account of my seafaring background. At your service, former captain, former pirate, presently in retirement as a gravedigger. I'm Pip, you say, wondering if he's mad. Hmm, heard tell once of a Pip that put page to the wizard Anselon. Hardly likely to be you, though, would it? And before you have a chance to answer, he goes on, No, no, I thought not. Never mind, if you've stumbled into Stone Martin Village, you'll be wondering what's the matter with the place. I tell you, since you were decent enough to help me out of the grave, it's cursed, that's what. The whole place, except for me. Couple of cottages turned to solid stone. The local banker was turned into a gnome. The vicar is a phantom now. All the horses ran away. Most of the ordinary folk got turned into stone monsters. Petrified, you might say. And a very strange class of person started to move in. 
I'd have been in trouble myself if the rum hadn't protected me. Very hard to curse a man with rum in him. At least that's my theory. I mean, with enough rum inside you, you've basically cursed yourself, haven't you? His eyes are glazed as if the mention of rum had sent the liquor recirculating through his system. Who cursed the village, you ask? But he is already collapsing with the drink. As he sinks to the ground and slowly rolls back into the open grave, you catch one muttered word. Dragons! Dragons? You shout, what about dragons? But your only reply is a snore from the open grave. Better return to your map and explore some more. You won't get anything else here. So I'm going to go out on a limb and say that the little sepulchre next to the graveyard might be of interest. Count Dracula used to say that when you've seen one crypt, you've seen them all. But whatever about that, this really does seem to be a rather special sort of crypt. For a start, it's all done up in pink marble. And then again, there's a brass plaque on the heavy wooden doorway which bears the words, O footsore and weary traveller. With dust in your feet, and quite possibly knits in your hair, enter here, and rest a while. With fine poetry, you I will beguile. So push the door, my traveller fair, and partake of my hospitably. Hospitably? Maybe they meant hospitality, but couldn't get that to rhyme with possibly. Not that hospitably rhymes very well with possibly either. Only one creature in the universe could write rhymes as badly as that. His fame is so widespread that almost everyone in Avalon has heard of him at some time or another. Could it be? Yes, yes it is. Below the plaque is an iron pike bearing the words, The Crypt of the Fiend. Please knock. And there is a, an image of the doorway. It's fine. Don't waste another moment, Pip. This will certainly be dangerous, but it should be well worthwhile. Go in, go in. Do you want to enter the Crypt of the Fiend? I guess I do, and find out if he's going to subject me to more badly scanning poetry. The interior of the crypt is hung with black velvet drapes in remarkably good condition, while the floor, walls and ceiling are all in the very finest white marble. In the centre of the floor is a small dais, and on it is an ebony coffin with a gleaming brass inlay. There is an inscription on the dais which reads... Wearily you journeyed on, all hope near gone, but now you're here, on your last breath, in the hope of finding someone dear or death. You groan inwardly at the standard of the verse, although all the while recalling that if this really is the poetic fiend, then you must be very careful to praise his poetry when he awakes and climb up on the dais. Surely enough, there is a brass plaque set into the lid of the coffin bearing the following inscription. To awaken the fiend, speak aloud the answer to this riddle. What's the difference between a duck? Speak your answer aloud now. Well, I happen to know the answer to that. Classic schoolboy nonsense joke. What's the difference between a duck? One of its legs is both the same. And if you're not from England, trust me, it doesn't make any more sense if you're English. I promise you. It's genuinely just gibberish. So, if you answered, that's a stupid riddle, go to one section. If you answered, I don't know, go to another. If you answered, one of its legs are both the same. I said, is both the same. I think we'll, we'll say that's close enough. At once, the coughing lid slams back, and a slim, deathly pale figure, dressed in an evening suit and opera cloak, leaps out with alarming speed. His eyes are pink, 
and his top teeth jut out over his lower lip, even when he's smiling, which he is now. Well done, my brave visitor. Well done. I could not have answered the riddle better myself, except in rhyme, of course. Something along the following lines. It was the riddle of the Sphinx. What is the difference between a duck? That one is easy, I thinks. And so I am in luck. And ever game, I look the Sphinx right in the eye and answer, One of its legs are both the same. There, says the fiend, eyes gleaming. What do you think of that as a poetic answer? Magnificent, you breathe, remembering the fiend likes to be flattered about his poetry. I felt the mythological illusions were particularly apposite. Yes, says the fiend, obviously pleased. So did I. Now, you are clearly a young person of taste and discernment. Let me give you an award for your intelligence. With which he takes from the pocket of his opera suit a small silver snuff box. Do you take snuff? He asks. You shake your head. Good, nods the fiend. A filthy habit and most unhealthy. However, you may make an exception of this snuff. It's not made of tobacco, but rather of ground mugwort. Blessed by a vicar of the Anglican Communion. This gives amazing healing properties. Take a pinch when you are feeling low and roll two dice twice. The total is the number of life points restored to you, up to your natural maximum. But you may only use the snuff once in any section. Otherwise, it will send you directly to another section. I'm just going to glance at now. All oh, right, yes, it will be fatal. It will be fatal. Got that? Good. Now on your way, adventurer bold, for it is cold, and I must get back into my coffin before I catch a chill and start coughing. And he slams down the lid, leaving you with a snuff box of healing stuff. Wow, that's really cool. Um, I'm going to use the snuff box immediately to see if I can't heal me some damage. So 4d6 worth of damage takes me 15 points. So effectively I can heal really quite a lot with that. There's no indication that it's limited in terms of the number of uses I can make of it. So I can go I can go hog wild on snuff. So let's go back to Stone Martin village. I'm gonna have a bit more tea as that voice was murder on the old vocal cords. Where might we go? Well, I'd quite like to take some more snuff, so I'm going to go and look at a random cottage because the Long John Cedric said a lot of the cottages had been turned to stone. So let's go to a random one. Well, not a random one. Let's go through them in order so that I can remember which ones I've been to and hope that I can take some more snuff. You know something? For the first time in this grotty village, you've actually found somewhere that feels nice. You stand just inside the doorway of the cottage, soaking up that very pleasant feeling. If you have been running short on life points, the cottage has restored you to full strength. How about that? What's more, you can return here after, but not during any section, to get restored again, provided, of course, you are still in the village. Now go back to your map and explore somewhere else, and don't complain, nothing nice ever happens to you. Oh, that's handy. Make a note of that, so... 
that's a good cottage. I must admit, I'm now having quite a nice time with this. I'm enjoying exploring this village a tremendous amount. So, there looks to be a cottage that's burned down, so I'm going to go and have a look at that one. Looks like the remains of a stone watchtower pip, and very, very old. In ruins now, of course, most of the tower itself has fallen in, and the whole area is covered with fallen stones and rubble. You could mess about here forever, spraining your ankle on loose stones. Why not just roll a couple of dice to see what, if anything, might happen to a worthy adventurer in this place? Can I get a five? It sends me in one direction. It's a straightforward 50-50. A little perseverance goes a long way. You've spotted a doorway. Not a door, just a doorway. The door itself is long gone. But the doorway leads into the ruined tower. You draw your sword and edge carefully towards it, senses straining for a hint of danger. There is no sound. Nothing at all. You enter. It is gloomy in these ruins, so that it takes a moment for your eyes to adjust, but eventually you see that the interior of the tower is in even worse condition than the outside. Fallen stones and heaps of rubble lie everywhere. There are the remains of a stone staircase spiralling upwards, but it doesn't go very far. You can see where the top fell in less than five metres above your head. For a moment you consider returning outside, but since you've come this far, you decide to explore a little. Your sword still at the ready, you begin to move carefully through the rubble. Once again, your perseverance is rewarded. You see, half hidden by the rubble, a rotted wooden trapdoor bound in rusty iron. There's an iron ring to lift it. You grip the ring firmly and heave. The ring comes away in your hand, but it doesn't matter. The whole door is so rotted, the metal so rusted, that it all crumbles, leaving you staring down into a deep, dark shaft. Too dark to see. Quickly, you light a torch. The flickering light shows you steep stone steps leading downwards. Once again, you hesitate, wondering if you should return to the sunshine outside. But what is there in the village for you? Are you not Pip the Dragon Slayer? Well, Pip the prospective Dragon Slayer, anyway. Bravely, you step onto the stairway. Bravely, you slip and fall. Bravely, you dust yourself down when you reach the bottom, with no damage done, fortunately. You are in an underground corridor. Dark, dank, unlit. Will you follow it? Of course you will. Well, won't you? If you don't wish to follow the corridor, you can return to the map and explore some other part of the village. If, in fact, you do follow the corridor, you can do that too. You emerge into a volcanic wasteland. All around you are lava flats, vast stretches of stone distorted into grotesque shapes, a rippled, pitted surface that is difficult to travel over. You are surrounded by high cliffs, their sheer faces towering upwards to vast heights. Let's hope you don't have to climb these, Pip, even with equipment, it could take you the best part of a year. It is gloomy here. The cliffs are so high that they cut out much of the sunlight. It should be chill as well, but the fact the place is almost tropical, probably on account of some low-level volcanic activity. Certainly, there is a sharp, acrid smell of sulphur, as if you had stepped into the very mouth of hell. You make your way forward carefully ears straining for any sound. The ground is generally firm enough, although it crumbles slightly in places, and from time to time a low, almost subsonic rumbling shivers from below your feet, setting your nerves on edge even more. There are only two routes open to you, due north and northeast. 
or other directions are cut off, either by the cliff faces or towering, tortured, twisted spires of rock. Picture of a volcanic wasteland, and it looks as welcoming as Barnsley. That is to say, very unwelcoming. Do we go north or do we go northeast? Well, this is actually the first chance we've got to take a left turn. And as we all know, first chance we get, we take a left turn. So let's go northeast. Oh wait, is east right or is east left? No, east is right, isn't it? East is right. Oh well, we can't take a left turn. Which means that north is the most leftward of the two turns we can take, so we actually go north. You proceed north for a short distance before discovering it was a bad old choice to make. The ground cracks abruptly beneath your feet, plunging you downwards into an underground lava stream. It's only a little stream, but that's neither here nor there. Even a little lava stream is quite enough to put paid to just about anybody. Go to 14. You open your eyes slowly. Somewhere in the background, a hidden orchestra is playing the funeral march from Saul. Around you is the crystal cave. Standing over you, looking extremely cross, is Merlin. Gone and gotten yourself killed, haven't you? He snaps. Very careless. Well, you'll just have to start again, won't you? And do a bit better this time, otherwise I'm never going to get my pension back. Just you roll dice the way I showed you to get yourself some money, then use it to buy more equipment and so on and so on from the lists, then go back to your map and start again. With which he wanders off into the depths of the cave, mumbling something into his beard about young people these days. And with that, our adventure is over. Slightly anticlimactic, but I have been recording for an hour and 45 minutes, near as damn it. So I'm perfectly happy for our adventure to come to a halt there. Shame not to get to see the dragon, but we did get to see plenty of the village of Stone Martin, so that's something. I'm going to be back in just a couple of seconds with some closing remarks. See you in a moment. These bonus episodes are supposed to be a bit quicker to knock together than the main sequence of fighting fantasy books because I'm just much less emotionally attached to the source material. This time, that didn't really happen, and instead I spent a decent chunk of my finite time on this planet reading a series of introductions that were nested like Russian dolls. Just when I thought I'd reached the start, it would turn out it was just more introduction in disguise. And I'm not convinced that the lengthy introduction really added all that much. It sets the scene, it does a good job of that. It sets the tone, it does a good job of that. And putting the rules in the narrative is a cute idea in theory, but in practice it mostly serves to make the rules harder to find and harder to remember, which is doubly problematic when they're quite complex by the standards of adventure game books. You've got rules for unarmed and armed combat, different weapons, a dreaming subsystem I completely forgot about during the actual play portion, a host of spells, and a laundry list of helpful items to juggle. The spells have a casting role, they cost three life points unless they cost more, and can only be cast three times, except for the ones that can only be cast once. Some of them have multiple uses, some of them have an immediate effect, some of them you can save things for later. There's a lot going on, and being lectured on it by a sarcastic wizard doesn't do a great deal to clarify the situation. The spells are interesting because they fall into what I think is a classic pitfall in gaming. The limited resource that you are disincentivized to use 
because you can always convince yourself you'll need them more later on. It'd be terrible to waste a combat spell, especially since they cost life points, and they have a chance to fail. Now, most fighting fantasy books treat them as items that you just use and they're done, and that works a lot better for me. I don't think there's anything necessarily broken with the magic system in Grail Quest. I think if you were much worse at fighting, and therefore effectively had to rely on the spells, you'd get a decent amount of use out of them because you just wouldn't have that other option. But given that you are armed with a magical sword and are a decent fighter, it always feels a bit like a bad gamble to use your spells. And I think there's a lesson there. If you want people to use magic, it's helpful if you make it either obligatory or at least just the better option, or don't attach a moderately punitive cost to using them. The combat system is interesting. It's quite brutal, especially when you fight someone with a halfway decent weapon. The way the misrule works, you either do zero or a good chunk of damage, and that makes misses very punishing. The book kind of recognises that this is an issue, and it just hands out plenty of ways to heal. The various battles are all clearly balanced for someone who's actually at or around full health. It's not a big problem, but I feel like the simpler solution would have been just to have the character heal after every battle, regardless of how it's been going. So it does feel a bit muddled. That said, I really enjoyed the Stone Martin section of the book. There's something very pleasing about being given a map and told you can go anywhere you like on it. That feels much more like a tabletop RPG to me. It does mean that you abandon any kind of narrative structure in favour of a disparate set of encounters that can't connect to each other all that easily. I mean, you can do it, but it's not trivial. But there's sections in many more linear adventure game books that are effectively just a string of disparate encounters and don't have that same sense of freedom. So I think on balance, it just works really well. Stone Martin is also where the tone feels most appropriate to me. The book, for better or worse, hits a very consistent style throughout. It's light, it's quite silly, and it's highly eclectic. And I think that sits much better in a surreal, cursed village than it does later when you get into the, theoretically, what is a lair of deadly dragons. Now, whether you like that style is a matter of personal taste. For me, it was a little wearing while I was recording, not least because the authorial asides on top of my own nonsense made it sound even more like I was having a nervous breakdown than usual. But I do appreciate the fact that it sets out a style and tone and then maintains it consistently. There's no real jarring tonal shifts. And I did enjoy the tone much more when I went back to read some of the later sections. Like The silliness is a nice change of pace in a hobby that could be straight-faced to the point of self-parody in the 1980s, and it doesn't read like any other adventure game book I covered, and I think it is well written within the parameters that it set itself. Like J.H. Brennan is a good writer. Aside from writing the Barney Jeffers books, which were some of my absolute favourites when I was a small boy, he also has written lots and lots of other books. He's experienced hand even in the early 80s. He has also written a quartet of adventure game books aimed at a more grown-up audience, I might try and get hold of one of those for a future episode because I'd be interested to see whether his style changes with a different audience in mind or if the jokes are maybe a little bit more, I don't know, smutty or whatever. Ultimately, The Den of Dragons is 
bursting with ideas, possibly to a fault. There's so much going on with the various systems that it doesn't quite hold together. But I can't be too hard on a book that aims very high indeed. And there's plenty of stuff in there that feels successful. I don't think I played any of the Grail Quest books as a nipper. But I reckon I'd have very much enjoyed the style. And the issue with the rules, I would have just ignored any of the rules that made my life more difficult and had a perfectly lovely time with it. So that's all for this bonus episode. Thanks very much for listening. Bit of an epic one, this one. I'll be back very soon with another book from the main fighting fantasy sequence. It's another Ian Livingstone book. We'll be delving into the Temple of Terror. I hope you will join me then. Until next time, take care.